Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're talking about The Menu, the new high-class horror film film from director Mark Mylod. Mylod? I don't know how to say his name, but he, he did a lot of succession on HBO, so the guy's got credits. And we're also talking about The Wonder on Netflix, new Sebastian Lelio film starring Florence Pugh as a nurse discovering a young woman's odd eating habits, or really her lack of eating habits. It sounds silly actually a bit more to it stick around we're going to talk about some more comments from quentin tarantino my man is on the press junket and he can't keep it coming to in himself it's coming right. in high. he's talking about marvel movies the death of cinema and that's exactly where we're going to put him in our death of cinema segment halfway through the show before we get to all of that some quick news this week but big news this week in a giant tremendous huge shocker Disney has Bob Chapek out as CEO. Bob Iger, former CEO for 15 years with the Disney company, has returned to the throne. I don't believe it. Andy, this happened Sunday night, 10 p.m., which is not when big companies make announcements. Word on the street is Chapek had no idea. And he also has, worth mentioning, <laughs> a gigantic $23 million golden parachute and a writer that says he can't disparage the company. So we won't hear anything from him, but he's getting paid just fine. Bob Iger, in a surprise move, is back. Apparently, the Disney board of directors approached him with a, with, a, with an offer and said, here's what we're going to pay you to come back. And he said, yes, he's on for two years. He's supposed to train up whoever's next. No idea who that's going to be. Andy, what do you think? A, a tale of two Bobs. It's, <laughs> uh, they can't yes. get away. I know. Shocking, uh, pretty shocking news. And I, I didn't I don't really have a, an opinion on Bob Chapek, but apparently Hollywood was just not real happy with him. And when it was announced that Bob Iger would return, I mean, Twitter was blowing up with everyone being like, oh, thank God. <laughs> like <laughs> this has been long, you know, return of the king, like the savior of Disney is is returning. Um, it's been really shocking. Uh, Bob Chapek has had to deal with uh, some pretty big issues like the the pandemic. Uh, he had to see the company through, but stock price is down the market cap is down you know a lot of business stuff but also things like uh the opening of some of the new uh park attractions like galaxy's edge went really poorly his like the big feud between disney and, and um scarlett johansson wasn't good and disney had kind of been more known for for being really friendly with with its creatives its actors directors and all that and so chapa kind of rubbed everyone the wrong way and uh the business just wasn't doing good. Streaming was also really taking a hit. Streaming is can be really profitable, but it's also super expensive. Yeah, I, I unlike Andy, uh, am, am a bit more of a Disney adult, and I do have hot takes on Bob Chapek being out. I think it's a good thing. Bring it. Yeah, uh, I, I think Chapek was a fine pick, I think, for CEO, but he was head of Parks, and his whole thing when he was doing Parks while Bob Iger was there and helping Chapek come up was like cutting costs. That was his whole responsibility. Cut costs at the parks, make it cheaper to operate, cut people, work it out, and make more money. Up prices. That's what he's been doing the whole time. And now Disney Parks, if you haven't been in a while, have a reservation system that's complicated and helps cut down employees that keeps rides moving not as efficiently. They've got Genie Plus, their new FastPass system that's more expensive and nickel and dimes you more. They've been up in food prices. Admission went up. They cut, they cut features like the Magical Express. Parks are a mess, all right? The stock price is doing very poorly. They were at 200, they were evaluated at $267 billion, $260 billion in November 2020. Now they're at $167 billion. That's almost a loss of $100 billion in value. And this is when Disney is riding high. Black Panther 2 is out, right? Not, not the best of the Marvel phases. Bob Chapek has been privy to a lot of that. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're kind of fine in their way. And, and Disney Plus is growing rapidly. How is this company doing poorly? And a lot of people point to their CEO. Believe it or not, uh, in 2020, there were some issues with money. And Bob Chapek actually pointed at, I forget who it was, the chief operations officer or somebody. And that woman ended up getting let go of the company. Reportedly, this time, he was going to point at the CFO and say, hey, this woman was the issue. And she rounded up the posse, <laughs> got with the board of directors and said, no, no, we're not doing this again. This guy's political. Uh, I did see some folks saying that that him being out is a good thing for, because Disney is too woke now. I think that's total garbage. But, you know, fans of the show are aware of my hot takes. Uh, the point is, I, I, like all around, I think people are glad this guy's gone. And it's weird because Iger is not the perfect CEO. He's just better than JPEG is based on a 15-year track record. I think it brings back consumer confidence. The, sto the stockholders like him, right? The board of directors like him. Probably a good move, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Bob Iger is responsible for uh, some of Disney's biggest and best decisions of the last 15 years. He bought Pixar. He bought Marvel. He bought Star Wars. He bought 20th Century Fox. He launched Disney+. Plus. Um, those were huge additions. And I mean, now, I mean, Marvel... Super and superheroes movies in general would dominate the box office. I mean, Disney's kind of calling the, the shots at the box office based on a lot of these the acquisition of these really big properties. So, I mean, he's done really impressive things. Has really been a, really about the the creatives and the the creative process and really highlighting those and be and prioritizing those and and it, it really shows. So, everyone seems to be. Really happy that he's coming back. Yeah, I, I won't linger too much longer on this because I realize I could I could talk forever about stupid Disney stuff. But Ch- like Chapik is as a CEO seems to have really grown on this idea that we can just leverage legacy properties and not build anything new. And Iger warned about this when he exited the company in 2019. Then he kind of came back on through the pandemic to help out. Um, he said like at Disney, you have to be willing to greenlight ideas that sometimes you're not sure about. Like, because ultimately Disney ha- it has become the company that they are by creating big ideas and then running them into theaters and just seeing what sticks, right? Like growing big, a big animated culture, like like uh, catering to a lot of big ideas for kids films. Like that stuff grows property over time. Like you can make rides out of it. You can sell merchandise off of it. But Chapik hasn't greenlit a lot of new things. It's mostly been safe ideas, Star Wars stuff, Marvel stuff. Pixar's mostly doing remakes. Like, you don't see a lot of anything new coming in. And Iger, while he was big at acquiring, which is questionable as far as creative is concerned, uh, he did also on occasion greenlight something new. He'd say, you know what? I don't know if this is going to work. Sure, let, let, let's let let Pixar make Inside Out, right? Maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll go somewhere. And it does. And, and that that's that's a good property now. They're making another film. Let's let's try something new here, you know? Like that that I think is the biggest advantage Iger has over Chapik. He's not the perfect CEO, um, but he's willing to take more risks and ultimately th- the safe isn't working. Like the cost cutting isn't working. They got to do something different. So board of directors is taking a risk and bringing back something particularly safe, I guess. I, I don't know what I'm saying. Anyway, any other hot takes on this before our next big story, Andy? I'm ready to go. Only two this week, and then we're jumping into the menu. Get this. Avatar 2 is so expensive, it has to be the fourth or fifth highest grossing film in history just to break even. This is a story right out of James Cameron doing presser for Avatar 2 because uh, Disney's not telling us how much money they're spending on that movie. Cameron's keeping it pretty tight-lipped. Until now. Uh, He said in an interview with GQ Magazine when asked, he wouldn't say how much it costs to make the movie, but he said it is very effing expensive. He was very particular. Uh, He went on to go say that Avatar 2, this is so wild, the worst business case in movie history. According to the director's estimates, you have to be the third or fourth highest grossing film in history. That's your threshold. That's your break even. Andy, who greenlights a movie that has to be the fourth or fifth biggest biggest great picture in history like who goes for that how do you sell that to investors i mean with someone like james cameron you sell his catalog you know things terminator 2 titanic avatar i mean he, aliens he is, yeah he, yeah he has reinvented the box office multiple times throughout his career you know has i mean two of the top three highest grossing films of all time are his titanic and and the first avatar so that's how we did it. However, however, we, we live in a very different age. Like we live in the age of streaming. When Avatar came out, it, it we didn't have streaming services. And I think it's a big ask because this is basically saying that he it needs to make $2 billion to break even. You know, when you think of uh, marketing and whatever, post-production, um, I can't believe it's that expensive. But I, you know, there was a time that, that some movies can, uh, you know, Spider-Man No Way Home, Star Wars The Force Awakens. But those were huge tent poles, lots of hype, lots of legacy, like once in a generation, once every 10 year kind of movie. This doesn't look like that to me, but I, I could be wrong. Okay. Uh, for, co- for some quick comparison, just to get an idea of other big films that have come out recently that made close to that, Spider-Man No Way Home made $1.9 billion, which is a big deal. Top Gun Maverick, which was in theaters for like a year, made $1.4 billion, all right? Everybody was talking about Top Gun, dude, at least in my circles. Like, my my dad was talking about Top Gun, okay? Like, everybody was talking about Top Gun. A lot of people talking about Spider-Man. 
I don't know if Avatar 2 has the smoke. I don't, right? Like, I, I think part of what worked so great about the first one was its lean on technology, which was a huge deal. 3D movies were just coming up. You threw on those glasses. Avatar played great. It was great in all over the world. And word of mouth, like, that's genuinely what helped grow it is friends telling friends, hey, we should, you know, go see Avatar. That'll be that'll be a good time. And and now I don't I don't know if Avatar 2 is going to have that. How much confidence do you have this movie's going to make two billion dollars, Andy? I don't. I I don't think it's going to make one billion. I think it's going to make a lot of money for a, a for, you know, it's going to be a successful film. It it has global appeal. It has you know, Cameron has always been good at spectacle, and spectacle translates well overseas. Um, I think so. I, it's got a lot going for it. It it is a big visual thing, but like. Again, I don't see it. I don't see it having Endgame type hype, Spider Man No Way Hope, Black Panther type, like as even Top Gun. Like I, it's just not generating that kind of buzz. That kind of, I mean, maybe it is. It, I mean, it would have to be something that unlike I've ever, I've never seen before. And while the visuals do look really stunning, it just, I, I don't see you telling a compelling story that's just gonna blow my mind. So I do think it'll clear a billion. I feel comfortable saying that because I am a big believer in the Cameron effect. All right. I'm also a big naysayer. But the fact is, a lot of people say James Cameron won't do it. It won't be another huge hit. And he keeps doing it like the man keeps putting out quality features. He does it rarely now, more often, less often than so. But even still, like, I think Avatar 2 is going to have some surprising buzz. And he's right. Like, it's global. That will play in every country. All right. China cannot wait to run that movie. And they're not even running Marvel movies right now. They, they want they want Disney to tone Marvel movies back. They're too much. Avatar will play great. I think Avatar's safe. Like, I, I, I just, I don't know, man. There's one month till it comes out. A little less, actually. We're recording this on the 22nd. It uh, comes out on December 16th. So if there's going to be marketing and there needs to be marketing, it's going to be in the next month. This is when you're going to start seeing billboards. This is when you're going to see ads on Twitter. Uh, this is when we're going to start seeing stuff for Avatar 2. Time will tell, right? Like, can Cameron pull a, pull a rabbit out of a hat again? How many times can you catch lightning in a bottle? I don't know. One, one of the things about movies that make that much money is the longevity uh, which usually means a whole lot of rewatchability. People just going back to the theater, you know, like people watch Spider-Man No Way Home two, three, four times. How many times did you go see more. Top Gun Maverick? Three times? I saw, yeah, I saw Top Gun three times in the theater. Yeah. Th thrown from my seat, <laughs> you know. <laughs> right, in D-Box uh, cinema, ejected into the audience, yeah. And those movies, especially Top, like Top Gun is endlessly rewatchable. Re like uh, I, every time you're you're in this because it's like a ride, it's like a roller coaster. You, you know, you don't you're not gonna get bored of it. I I just don't see that happening with this movie. If like we're watching this for the show, if we didn't have this show, I would wait till streaming to probably watch this. Like I right. would just not not it's and once you see it once, I'm definitely I'm definitely not going back. Like I'm not especially for a three hour film. Like, hey, it's worth mentioning. It might be a good date movie. I don't know. Maybe the effects are rad. Like it, it is. There are things here that I think work. I, I just, I, I don't know. I don't know if there's ever a time to doubt the Cameron effect. It's, it's when the movie needs 2 billion to break even like that's such a high bar. I'm going to uh, call, call it. If, if it bombs, I'm going to call it the way of slaughter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did you already worked that out. That's great. Just now. Uh, yeah. I bet, I bet you're going to be dropping that. Like the Sunday it comes out, you're gonna be like, didn't clear 500 million opening weekend. The way of slaughter. <laughs> we'll 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 have to see uh keeping her on off script for more but with that we need to move into the show uh we've got to talk about this next movie uh i didn't i think i knew what to expect when i went and saw the menu but i didn't know exactly what i was getting into and i'm pleased to say there is more than meets the eye uh i'm doing the review on this so please excuse my clumsy delivery the movie is the menu oh my god you shouldn't be here tonight so the menu is the story of Margot and Tyler, this young, affable, wealthy couple who are headed to a private island to experience a once-in-a-lifetime dining experience unlike anywhere else in the world. It's a limited menu of just 12 people uh, arriving at this island to, to experience this wonderful chef, Chef Slowick, and this incredible seven-course menu that he's put together of all kinds of food, right? Uh, really fancy stuff, whether that be like 
a chicken a chicken breast that's been slow roasted over over a fire or sea foam on a rock you know things that really really wealthy people eat the menu is a horror feature because unfortunately for margo and tyler things start to go awry as the evening goes on and it turns out that this this experience is about much more than just the food on the plate but uh the film i think does a really clever job of becoming just a bit of a dig at the uh the wealthy right the people out there who are willing to pay thirteen hundred dollars a plate for just extraordinarily silly ideas uh as far as food are concerned at least to the rest of us uh movie is directed by mark mylod i don't know how to say his name i should have looked it up before we started but uh, he is a prominent director of HBO's Succession. Uh, he actually used a lot of the crew from Succession on this movie. Same producers. Uh, and Succession is, if you've seen it, also a dig at the upper class. Very very excited to talk about the menu. Andy, what'd you think? I really enjoyed this. And I was kind of skeptical going in. I'd seen the, the trailer ad nauseum uh, in the theaters. And it, it looked kind of generic, kind of predictable. It looked like the kind of thing that you've seen before and and the trailer apparent seemed to give away the whole movie um but it turned out to be quite different uh than i thought it goes in a little bit different direction it is definitely a critique of the wealthy but it's also critiquing some other things like it it's kind of critiquing connoisseurism you know uh think of the foodie who just has to a food snob basically which you could translate to other um you know music snobbery or film snobbery it, it's kind of is that in the way that that kind of thing ruins certain types of art. Um, but it's also, it, it just has really good performances, particularly from uh, Ray Fiennes, who's as, as chef Slowick is just, um, he's great. He's menacing, but not cruel. Like, you know, you, you, you don't ever see him do anything violent or all of a sudden like beats, beats someone up. He's just, he's so intimidating by his, his mannerism, his voice, his, his tone. And uh, the story has a few twists and, and turns, which make a lot of sense, but um, kind of keeps you on on your toes. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I really didn't expect to. Yeah, I, uh, film reviewer Mark Kermode said this movie was really smart, but in a disposable sort of way. Uh, it definitely feels like a one-off feature. This is just one little closed loop movie. You're not going to need a whole lot going in, and when you walk away, you can you kind of enjoy the experience and move on. Uh, sorry. Drop my phone on the ground. Uh, I, I think the menu is surprisingly smart. It is a little manic, I feel, uh, at least in its like first act. Uh, it's something about the camera movement and the editing. There's just a lot of it, it and and it's it's often like you know the camera will be sliding over this way, zooming on somebody, pulling out, crash zooming, uh, dollying, and at the same time like lots of quick cuts make what would otherwise feel like a slower, more thoughtful experience feel really busy. Um, but that. Is, is a weird opening for me, but I think that helped kind of like, I don't know, move, move me in my chair a little bit and get ready for the second half of the film when things actually pick up and really start moving in a, a, a prominently horrific direction. Then suddenly like a lot of that manic energy translates to a feeling of like surprise and suspense and it works. I, I don't know if you observe that at all, Andy, but I just felt like at first this movie had me on my heels and I, I think it, it worked out better in the end because I think it, it comes around as being smarter than just what is presented in the, in the trailer. Yeah. I, th I think it's particularly self-aware. Like it, it really yeah. seems to know what it's doing. And, and that's where some of that like comedy kind of comes and shines through surprisingly, surprisingly funny feature. Lots of laughs in my studio, in my, in my theater. Yeah. Same. I, and it was, uh, I went and saw it on a month late on a Monday night and I had about a half full, uh, theater. So it was, um, you know, it was pulling a, a crowd, and yeah, what I like at the beginning is that it it does the opposite of of what I complain about when when films take forever to get to the premise. Like some films would take an hour to get to the restaurant. Here, you're you're there within fifteen twenty minutes, um, and it, but the film has to do a lot. It has to get us to to the island, to the restaurant, introduced a, a large. You know, there's like eight couples or so. Um, groups of people which are all play kind of different foils and archetypes and it's got to get us there and get going quickly so i can i can kind of understand see that that manicness at the beginning yeah you're right it's it's kind of got to be busy for what it is and it moves pretty efficiently at an hour 47 um they're actually believe it or not there were some parts i felt were slow but those would be like 
the long suspense, right? Or they're like really drawing out a scene or Ray Fiennes has like a really captivating speech about, I don't know, the, the beauty of food and life on the island. Like is there's all kinds of stuff in there, which I think is valid because a lot of it is surprisingly thoughtful and also like hilariously spoofed. There's a great scene when Ray Fiennes like gives this speech and Marco played by Anna Taylor Joy turns around to look at Tyler who she's dining across. She's like, do you believe this guy? And Tyler's like visibly crying. <laughs> Because he, he totally believes what's being said. Uh, one of one of a few very funny moments in the movie. But uh, ultimately, like I think I was really surprised by how well it manages to navigate what seems like a thin idea. Andy's right. The whole thing feels like it's in the trailer. And, and I said last week on the show, I've said I told Andy, like I don't want to know. I don't. Wanna, I don't know if I want to go sit for this movie for an hour hour forty seven when I already know it's going to happen. And like pleasantly, there there's much much higher highs than just, Oh, here's what I think is going to go on in the trailer. Like it, it's as somebody said on Twitter, it, it plays one note, but it plays it really well. And I think there's more than one note there, but I agree. Like it's simple and it's exactly, it hits it right on the head. It, it nails exactly where it needs to be. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to get into our cast uh, a little bit. Of course we have the great Ray Fines uh, as chef Slowick, who is, has, you know, he, he runs this kitchen, um, I mean, he's just, it's like clockwork. Every, he, he just talks and claps and his work is just, you know, exactly what to do. He's great. Nick, uh, Nicholas Hole is this, you know, w wealthy jerk. Um, Mar and Margot is very different. She's much more kind of down to earth. She's more, uh, you know, she's not impressed by any of this. And, you know, she, and she keeps being told, people keep telling her, they're like, you're out of place. You don't belong here. Um, <laughs> without being soft. But, we also have these interesting couples. We we have John Leguizamo play, is playing this uh, director actor who's kind of in the twilight of his career. We we have uh, some tech bros there, just you know wanting to flex their money. We we have the food cri critic who makes and breaks uh, careers and and restaurants, and we we have some old money there as well. And so all these people kind of play off of each other. It's a really interesting ensemble. Yeah, I, I was surprised at like how effective the cast is. You see a lot of familiar faces that you'll think, I've seen them in something else, but I can't exactly narrow where. Arturo Castro had a show on Comedy Central. Uh, you've probably seen clips of him doing sketches online. Uh, the sommelier, Peter Gross, uh, was one of the guys in the Sonic ads who sits in the car. Like, <laughs> he's, he shows up, and, he, and he's surprisingly good in it. Like I, I was really pleased with the cast. I, I think the producers uh, managed to pull a lot of like favors in from people, get together, and do a simple shoot like uh, we were talking about before the movie, before the, the show here uh, that this may be a pandemic feature like they because they could have easily shot most of this in a studio in a few days. I mean, nothing too complicated. There are some good exteriors. You do get some stuff for the most part it takes place in this itty bitty island. And Andy's right. Like the way the movie gets going is perfect. It doesn't waste 45 minutes trying to get to the restaurant. The movie opens and they're on the dock waiting for the boat. And the boat is like pulling up as <laughs> yeah. it's like just just really gets to it. And and I think that stuff's important, like because it keeps the movie moving. And it keeps you getting into suspense quicker, which is good stuff. Uh, I do want to talk about that. Uh, Ralph Fiennes like really turns it on in this movie as this very menacing chef who, like Andy said, is not like mega evil or anything and is not like full Voldemort menacing all the time people have honest conversations with him he's got funny lines in the movie like he expresses a good range of emotions as a relatively believable yet uh, self-appointedly tortured artist who believes that like nobody appreciates what he's doing anymore so he has to go bigger and bolder and create this swan song masterpiece uh for the world and that's that's what he's doing with these diners this is this is an experience unlike any other this is the best in the world uh, I did like our cast. Uh, I was surprised how much we got to know everybody, all, like all the other diners. You'd think with a cast of 12, um, not including our actual chef and the staff at Hawthorne, that that might be a little full. But you do a really good job of kind of getting just enough on everybody. Just You get just enough dirt on everybody in the room that you feel pretty satisfying when you start to find out like why they're there and how they've gotten there and like what, like what their purpose is. And they do a good job of setting up Anya Taylor-Joy as Margot is kind of this like question mark in the middle of all of it. Why, why is she here? What, what, what's going on with her? She's, she's the one we really need to get answers on. And she's also functionally our lead. Uh, ultimately, I think I was really satisfied with the menu. Um, it was different, but smart. <laughs> right. Uh, I, I wanted to touch on uh, Ray Fiennes, uh, like you said. Uh, 
this is obviously a criticism of, of the wealthy class as well, but it it's also a criticism of the artists, the artists and people who kind of bow to that as well. And he's kind of it's a self indictment as well because he's he is admitted to doing the same thing. He's like, oh, I, I'm owned by this wealthy person. This person has kind of controlled me and it not allowed me to be the artist that I I want to be. And so it's an interesting dynamic because Tyler who's wealthy wants to he wants to be like chef slowick he wants his approval he wants to talk to him and but he's essentially not not you know he's not a chef the chef is not a wealthy person and so he doesn't have that same kind of power but he has a different kind of power because of being such a highly regarded uh chef i wanted to also last uh person i wanted to touch on is uh hong chow who plays elsa she's kind of the the right hand man of yeah. uh and it just does this great deadpan calm. Uh, she's an Asian lady. She um, you might recognize her from HBO's Watchmen. Uh, she plays Lady True. Oh yeah, uh, you're right. She is Lady True. And she it's just a bit a bit of that that same character, very threatening, but very like calm. Like you know, she'll talk to you very slowly, very calmly. Well, you're getting a knife in your back, kind of uh, person. But uh, another another fun character in this. Yeah, Hong Chao's great. There were some folks on Twitter saying she steals the whole show. Uh, I would agree if it weren't for how much I enjoyed Nicholas Holt. God, he's such a... Tyler's such like a, a weasel, man. Like, he's this, this guy really who's super is, yeah. rich. He's a foodie. And he takes photo of, photos of all his food. And he's, like, really into it. And he definitely explains that in, in, a, in a satisfying way. But, like, God, he really gets under your skin after a while in the movie. And Holt, Holt turns that up so good. Uh, he's 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 phenomenally unlikable when he needs to be. Uh, Far Cry from Mad Max Fury Road. Uh, overall, yeah, I was really pleased with the menu. I think this movie is smarter than it needs to be. Uh, I I'm still a little surprised this wasn't a straight to streaming feature. Uh, because it kind of feels like it. But at the same time, like I couldn't believe how many people in my theater last night. I, I'm guessing it's because it's Thanksgiving week. Like maybe it's, it's got, just the yeah, holidays. Fam, fa- yeah, families are in from out of town. But like, yeah, it's this movie's moving. Like for for the Monday after it came out, I was surprised at how many folks were seeing it. So yeah, we'll keep an eye on the menu. Any other thoughts for recommendations, Andy? You know, it's funny. Uh, I rewatched uh, Midsummer recently, and this kind of reminded me of that. You know, some way really? where it's like, oh, you're okay. you're co- well, because it's like, oh, you're coming to this. Uh, innocuous party that you think is gonna be a lot of fun and then it all, all turns right all all these people uh, clad in white who initially present as like really good and like oh yeah we're here for you like there starts to be a turn yeah okay uh but i i think i'm ready for recommendations andy would you recommend the menu absolutely it was a lot of fun it was a big surprise um it's funny it's got really really good gags and, and jokes Every, everyone is funny in it Great performances from our stars, Anya Taylor-Joy, Nicholas Holt, Ray Fiennes, John Leguizamo. Not too long, clocks in under two hours. Uh, surprisingly deeper than I thought it was going to be and goes in directions I, I didn't predict. So I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it too. I, I think the menus, like I said, I keep saying smart, but I, I think it's clever in the in the best way that it can be. Like it really comes back around by the end of the movie uh, with a... Uh, an ending that I really enjoyed. Uh, overall, I'd recommend the menu. I, I think it's really smart. I, I don't know if you got to go take go see it in theaters, but hey, if you're looking for like a quick date night, you could do far worse. There were a lot of couples seeing the menu, like a lot, a lot of good laughs in there. And you know, some some pleasant digs at a certain sect of society that doesn't often get so hung up on. It reminded me of movies like Bodies, 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 or one that we missed that we need to watch later, A Triangle of Sadness. Uh, even Knives Out, right, swings on the upper class. I think Glass Onion will as well. So. We'll keep an eye on movies like The Menu. Overall, I was really pleased. Uh, and with that, we should probably move into our middle segment here. Andy, you want to you wanna open this one up for us? It's time for the death of cinema. All so right. Tarantino yeah, is back. <laughs> yes, Tarantino's back. In the limelight, uh, again, we talked about uh, last last week. He had some some hot takes, and then it was announcing a TV show. He had some more to say about Marvel and superhero uh, films. That by saying, you know, they're not even star. We don't even have movie stars anymore. Like people don't go to see stars; they go to see the character, the IP, Captain America. You go to see the hero, Batman, whatever. We don't have movie stars anymore. The, 
some people are, are upset about these. I think he's right on some of it. I think he, uh, we got, but we're going to go over this whole thing. Uh, yeah, Tarantino, I, I think, is surprising for us to see in our Death of Cinema segment twice in a row, because otherwise we don't hear a lot from the man. Uh, but he's pushing his new book, and he's <laughs> he's going out and talking about stuff, going on podcasts. Uh, this is where we found out last week that he is working on a TV show. Uh, and this week we found out he doesn't have a whole lot of opinions as far as uh, quality of movie stars goes. Jennifer Aniston had made a point about this in November when she said, yeah, there are no more movie stars. And and Tarantino seems to agree. He said specifically on the Two Bears, One K podcast, part of the marvelization of Hollywood is you have all these actors who become famous playing these characters, but they're not movie stars, right? Captain America is the star or Thor is the star. I mean, I'm not the first person to say that. I think that's been said a zillion times, but it's like, you know, it's these franchise characters that become a star, which is, you know... <laughs> An opinion. I, I mean, not, I guess. not wrong. Not, I mean, not wrong. I like kind of like I, I totally get what you're <laughs> but, saying. But like if you re- like, I, I don't know. Go ahead, Andy. What, what do you think? about this? this isn't just uh, I mean, Marvel. He's laying the blame on Marvel. But this is something that's been happening to the film industry as a whole that the the spectacle and the yes, sometimes the the IP has become. But what people see and the, the movie star is just has less power. It used to be you just attach a name to a flick and you're going to make a ton of money. But now it's less and less that. And yes, you people want to you want to see famous faces, but the, they just don't have the kind of pull that uh they used to. And that's something that's been the movie star has been in decline in general for maybe the last 10 years and it's not just been because of Marvel. Yeah, I I feel like I need somebody to sit me down and like really like conk me on the head and draw me a picture and explain how the movie star is dead. Like, I totally hear you. Like, I, I, I get it. People are not turning out like for big star features anymore. Um, but at the same time, uh, if Chris Evans got re uh, Chris Evans, if uh, Chris Pratt got recast as star Lord for guardians three, that would be a big deal. And I genuinely think it would impact ticket sales. I mean, maybe not in a big way, but it would. Um, and that's a, you know, that's a, that's a, Oh my God. That's a, that's a feature with a lot of stars. What am I trying to say here? Uh, I don't know. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of good people at the front of that. So he's just one of many. Uh, if Tom Cruise is is not Maverick in whatever the sequel to Top Gun is going to be, people are not showing up. Now, Tom Cruise is a far cry. Tom Cruise is an exception. But at the same time, like George Clooney and Julia Roberts just put out a rom-com that's still doing pretty well. All right. It's not doing great. It's not at the top, but it's there. I, I think a lot of people are dissuaded by this, especially industry folks who maybe don't feel like they're in the limelight as much as they used to be. Jennifer Aniston, star of Friends. Uh, I think they feel like, you know, between the pandemic and how well Disney's doing that they just can't get a piece of the pie anymore. You know, they're in their 60s and they're saying, hey, this isn't this isn't the way I want it to be. And they're forgetting (laughs) that, like a lot of the people going to movies are in their 20s and 30s, maybe even their teens. And they think Marvel movies are a ton of fun. I even I'm starting to get tired of them. But just because like the industry is starting to turn a certain way does not mean that uh, like movie stars are out in the cold. I think they just have to step up and be bigger. That's I don't know. Well, I th- I think the, it's not we we of course still have have stars like Chris Hemsworth, Chris Evans is still a movie star, but they're not a movie star the way that Tom Cruise was in the eighties and nineties or Will Smith or Brad Pitt. That anything they did was going to turn to gold. That that it would make or break your movie if they decided. Because now you can you can kind of swap out these people, and it, it's not. And in some ways, it, it's a hedge for the the studios because they don't have to depend so much on the actor you know if the actor you know if he has a scandal or you know if it goes like ezra miller Armie hammer like mm-hmm. if your film doesn't depend as much on on names it gives the studios a little bit more leverage so things are definitely uh different that's true and i don't necessarily think that's just because of disney right he, he says the marvelization but he's speaking towards kind of the general impressions of the box office as movie theaters, as movies start to like slants more towards sequels and more towards superhero movies and legacy properties that Hollywood knows are going to work. Accountants will count and say, Hey, this is going to be a hit guaranteed. We should only do these movies, but I don't think that's, that's the only problem. Another big problem here is like availability of media. Uh, When Will Smith was the King Midas of movies for like a decade and the man could not put out a bad feature until Hancock, uh, you know, we we didn't have iPhones like to watch Netflix on and we didn't even have Netflix to watch movies on streaming services weren't a thing. You had crappy TV, cable TV with HBO and premium packages, which was fine. And you had film like that's where you were at. YouTube was only just really becoming a thing. The fact is there's so much more space in the medium now 
for people to come up as an influencer, to people to come up as a TikTok star, for people to grow on a streaming service, on like a little show on Netflix you don't know about, for people to get on the CW and guest star on Riverdale and ultimately like grow your career to a point where you're comfortable, that that means movie stars got to come out bigger and harder than ever before. If you want to be Tom Cruise, you got you to figure out a way to become Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is there because he's a legacy property, because he's grown his name, and that's why he's still a big movie star. There's nothing stopping Jennifer Aniston from making movies. I, I mean, I, she's probably getting some crappy rates, but like, I don't know. Get a new agent. Like you got to be your, you got you to paddle your own canoe, right? But, like but, these movie stars are mad because they're like, why doesn't my name carry it, carry a, a huge paycheck anymore? Well, cause, cause people can go other places for media. Like people can watch things other places. People watch streaming instead of film now. Like, I, I don't know. Is that crazy? Am I wrong? Am I making any sense at all? I think I'm just rambling. Uh, I mean, I, I, th I think that long gone are the days, especially, I mean, Jennifer Anderson was a TV star who, had right. a somewhat successful jump to yeah the films, but it's like no, you you never carried a lot, you know, you never carried a big something to a billion dollars and were the star and were, and yeah, yeah, especially some of these people that are kind of older now, it's like, well, I'm not sure what what you're like, you know, Tom Cruise is exactly, you know, he's out there doing the work, he's making uh, what do you call it? Top Gun Maverick? He's making Mission. He's Impossible. doing his own stunts. He's, yeah, yeah, like he's. he's He's, he's screaming at people out wearing masks. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I I don't think you're wrong about that. The other thing I wanted to touch on there is, uh, you know, some people reacted to, um, Tarantino saying saying this. Um, Simu Liu, who uh played, uh, who was in Shang Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, uh, had something to say. Uh, this is from Twitter. He says, if if the only gatekeepers to movie stardom came from Tarantino and Scorsese, I would never have had the opportunity to lead a four hundred million plus movie. Yep. I am in awe of their filmmaking genius, their transcendent auteurs, but they don't get to point their nose at me or anyone. No movie studio is or will be perfect, but I'm proud to work with uh, one that has made sustained efforts to improve diversity on screen by creating heroes that empower and inspire people of all communities everywhere. I loved the golden age of cinema too, but it was white as hell. Yep. I, I I think that's a worthy take. Like, I really do. Because not only does streaming and availability of platforms that are cheaper and easier to access than going to the movie and paying the price of admission or having a cable package, not only does that enable more ideas and more stories to be told, it enables wider diversity, which is very true. This is what he's saying here. Like, you have a lot more opportunities from people from all walks of life, from all over the world, of all ages, of all ability to come in and present themselves and put themselves on the world stage and do something really cool. Marvel has been leaning into this and for the most part, it's been working. I should say Disney, but you know, Marvel for the sake of Marvelization as uh, Quentin Tarantino is talking about. And, and Simu Liu nails it on the head. Like he's, he's absolutely right. Like if it was up to Martin Scorsese and Tarantino, that my man would not be a movie star. Like he is because of the new landscape and Jennifer Aniston's out here like, well, why isn't it like it used to be? Like, come on. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I get you guys are in your 60s. And when I'm in my 60s, I bet I'm going to feel the same way. Right. Old man shouting at clouds. But like it just feels like short sighted to say like what? Why? Why are the new kids getting a piece? This isn't right. You know, I, and I agree. Like it's a bummer that Simulu has not done much since like he's working on other stuff. He's going to do Shang-Chi, too, of course. Um, and if there were more movie star slants, then maybe these guys would have a better track to being bigger and bolder, but there would be less of them. And I don't think that's a bad thing that there's a more like bigger, diverse cast of characters in Hollywood. I, I it does mean less big work for some folks like Tarantino uh, or Jennifer Aniston. But if you want to carve out like your space there, I, I really do think you can. James Cameron is making a movie. <laughs> two billion dollars to clear tom cruise has mission impossible coming on coming along and top gun is gonna hit uh paramount plus in december 22nd that's when that's coming out so yeah i don't know man like i i, I guess i see what they're saying but i i don't think i think the benefits of the current landscape outweigh the costs and if the cost is like big movie stars can't make a billion dollars every time they make a feature then maybe that's okay right like i, I don't know who's who's it hurting the one percent the man yeah yeah so I, you know, I think there are there is some truth in a number of these takes. You know, I, I do think that um, the movie star itself has kind of isn't what it was twenty thirty years ago. Um, at the same time, you know, Tarantino also was saying in here there's less representation as far as the kinds of films we get. We because so much, 
so many resources are devoted towards superhero stuff and IP that we're not getting as much uh, of a kind of diverse film landscape. And at the same time, Simu Liu is absolutely correct that these auteurs of yesteryear did not cast a lot of minorities or women or people of color or any of that. I mean, I mean, like look, look at any of Scorsese's film. He, not a lot of diversity. Same thing with Tarantino. Tarantino's done better about it over the, the years, but right. um, Mar- I mean, Marvel making Marvel and Disney making a very deliberate effort to diversify their heroes and who plays their heroes is, is huge as well. Tarantino getting dunked on for lack of diversity and inclusion will always be funny. (laughs) It's always peak comedy for Tarantino to get swung on for this Uh, because you know, he's, he's got a, he's got a a unique filmography uh, with some, with some interesting takes. And and I don't think this is necessarily the spot to grandstand on, but I, I do think, I don't know. Like, I is, is this what getting old is, Andy? You think the people older than you don't know what they're talking about, and then before you know it, you turn around and you're that person, and the people below you don't know what they're talking about? Because I, I just, I, I don't think Hollywood's in a bad spot. I really don't. I, maybe Jennifer Aniston is, uh, but <laughs> yeah, you know, like that's okay. And, and and we mentioned this last week, but Tarantino's got a got an axe to grind on Disney big time. Like, yes, Touchstone Pictures helped him get Pulp Fiction off the ground. But when he's trying to get the hateful eight out in theaters, he was going up against Star Wars and he could not get that movie in a lot of places because Disney just would not let him. They they squeezed him out. They said, nope, we're going to be on five theaters in the megaplex and we don't care. Um, They did that all over the country. So I I get it. Like, I I know my man's mad, but. Well, also also that he's not getting a $200 million budget. Yeah, he sure isn't. (laughs) You know. No. And and Scorsese getting that, getting that, or like $250 million that it was for The Irishman. Yeah. I'm so glad that movie exists, but. No studio would have ever done that. Netflix, right? Without net, without Netflix. Yeah. yeah, and like maybe that's not such a bad thing. I mean, even Spielberg's got an axe to grind against these people. I just, I don't know. Anyway, we should probably move into our final film of the episode. Andy's going to take the summary on this one. Andy, please uh, take it away. The wonder. How long exactly has it been since the last time the girl ate? Four months. That's impossible. So this is the latest film by director Sebastian Lelio. First came on the scene, or is most well known for A Fantastic Woman, uh, which won, I believe it won Best Foreign Film several years ago. Uh, that's a story about a, a trans woman, the death of her partner and family. And this is his latest film on Netflix, uh, starring the blessed Florence Pugh, uh, this takes place in the 1860s in rural Ireland. There is this miracle child who has not eaten for months. She hasn't eaten in four months since her the child is 11, and uh, it's a bit of a a miracle. And people are coming all over to see her to seek her counsel. Uh, some doctors have a uh, local doctor has, has written an academic paper on her, saying this child has not eaten. It's amazing. We don't know how doing in the local parish and pastors are also saying it must be a miracle from above a child of God, all these things. So Florence Pugh is set in, uh, who plays Lib Wright. She's an English nurse. Her being English is very, uh, pertinent to this to perform a, a watch to basically observe this child to see if she is at any point she is actually eating. And she watches for eight hours and shifts with another, nurse who is uh who's actually a nun so we have a very scientifically minded person in uh, nurse right and nun nurse to kind of balance uh, the scales kind of. uh lib right Florence Pugh's character is not convinced at all <laughs> she's just like this is some bs there's some she's getting food somehow we don't we just haven't figured it out um but she watches this child several for several days it's supposed to last two weeks and uh the child is not eating and is is still fine, and it's it's a it's a mystery, and uh, that's that's kind of our setup, and it's it's a question of whether you know is this happening, is this not happening, is there something else going on, and this is all going on against the background of post Irish famine, uh, which uh, which forty five to eighteen forty nine, about ten years after, but the the land, the country is still very devastated and reeling uh, from this, so that's our setup. Zach, what do you think? So I didn't really know what exactly to expect from The Wonder. I'd watched the trailer once. I didn't really remember Sebastian Lelio. It wasn't until Andy reminded me that 
Uh, he directed Disobedience uh, in 2019, which was one of my favorite uh, features. 2017, oh my God. Uh, it was one of my favorite features that year. I thought Disobedience was really smart and, and really cool. If you haven't seen it, you should go check it out. Great performances. Um, but The Wonders on Netflix, and it stars Florence Pugh, who I love, and then nobody else I really know. But I, I loved how simple the, the premise was for this movie, right? Nurse arrives at a place she's not in. There's this girl who hasn't eaten in four months. You have to figure out why. Then you got two weeks. Really simple. Uh, and they're so far out in the boonies, it almost reminded me of something like The Lighthouse. Uh, but you get a much larger cast, fortunately, and much more room to run. I, overall, I was really pleased with The Wonder. I, I, I don't think it's... Uh, I don't know if I would have supported it so much in theaters, but I think this is one of those Netflix features that like feels really sharp and feels really smart. And I'm glad it's, it's trending is like number two on their site and it's on their homepage and people are watching it. Um, I don't know. I think the wonder is pretty sharp. Uh, where do you want to start talking about this thing? Andy? Why don't we talk about the intro? (laughs) We got to talk about the intro. Yes. (laughs) Um, so we, we had heard some weird things that, that this movie starts very strangely uh, and it's kind of bizarre, um, which doesn't make a lot of sense because it's just a period piece, uh, taking place in rural Ireland. Um, but it starts in a very, uh, metaphysical way with, uh, the opening scene is actually like on the set of the film and it starts with this set and you see like the different like houses and places yeah, and the camera kind of slowly pans around and eventually kind of flows into the film we're watching. It's a really bizarre thing, and and I think I understand why they did this. And it only comes back; uh, it comes back a couple more times. Uh, it's kind of bookended by this technique, but it was very surprising. Yeah, we got together and watched this uh, at Andy's place. Actually, wonderful host. You also tried it sometime, and uh, we were watching it with a friend of ours. And uh, as the movie opened, I said, "You know, I saw a GIF on Twitter." of what somebody said was like the most surprising film opening of the year from this movie. And I thought it was a joke. And then right when it opened on the opening frames, I said, yep, nope, this is it. And it, it's opens with, with narration. It's, it's on, it's on the film set. And it says this, this is the beginning of a film called the wonder. And then it starts to explain what you're seeing. And it's so odd and so uncalled for that. It may, it may hurt the experience more than it helps it. It's clever. It's really clever. I, I haven't seen a movie do this in a while where it literally presents almost like a documentary at the open as like, this is very much real life and we're being very meta here. And the camera dollies over and kind of pulls into the world of our film. And then the real drama and the actual movie gets started. Uh, And I think it's a a framing device that works for the spirit of the film because it's, it's supposed to be very upfront and very abrasive about the idea that this is a movie about telling stories and about your belief and what you hear, whether you believe the thing that you've been told or not. And so presenting the movie as this kind of like outside of itself feature and pulling into our set and pulling into the world with Florence, Florence Pugh and her story tells us that we are to believe what we're seeing. We're even told the characters in this story believe with absolute certainty the things that they say. Like this is this is a story we are to believe. But it is also like uniquely distracting. Our friend we were watching with said, so does that come back at any point? <laughs> I said, I don't know. I, I, I really couldn't tell you. Um but other than that, I think when you get when you get past that divisive feature that you will either like or you won't, um, I think the drama here is actually pretty good stuff. Right. the The main story, the skepticism, um, is really interesting because our our nurse seems to be the only one who is skeptical of this, and everyone either believes it or really, really wants it to uh, to be true. Uh, her presence in her presence is not well liked. Um, if you're not familiar, the Brit, the English government was largely responsible or depending on who you ask, didn't help with the uh, Irish famine. And so the, the English are not well thought of here. So everyone pretty much wants her to leave as, as soon as she gets here, she's here to do it, to do a job. Um, and you know, she meets the family, the family, it's a l- large Irish, uh, family. They, you know, they don't really like this arrangement uh, either. They're very devout uh, in their faith, and as is everyone else. Um, at some point, there's a, a journalist played by uh, David Wilmot who comes to to kind of to report on what's happening. This miracle child is it real? And he's trying to get interviews. He's trying. He's 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 a little slimy that that way as a journalist, just trying trying to get interviews with people. He should probably 
leave alone. But there, there's a lot of tension in, in whether or not this is actually happening. Right. They're, they're, they become like some emergent motivations for a lot of characters in the movie because this girl who's not eating is uh, the titular wonder, right? Like, and within a time well before the internet or television or really even like effective news news gathering, uh, people would travel from far and wide to see this, to see this girl, this, this magical girl who won't eat. And of course, uh, there's a religious zeal to it. Andy's right. Like this, this is a place that's particularly uh, evangelical and they believe that what they're seeing is a miracle. So they want to keep the miracle going. They're not generating a lot of funds off of it. That's made very clear. It's just kind of going in the poor box. Anybody who wants to donate to the family, they just say, just put it, put it in the poor box. We don't want it. But even still, like there is a certain allure to being a wonder. And, and Florence Pugh is, is quickly discovers that not only is that a potential motivator for what's happening, but it might hold the reasons as to why this girl isn't eating. And, and that, I think, is particularly effective that's subtext right that's told on screen without just telling you maybe the family d d wants her to be a miracle and doesn't want her to be normal and maybe there's some kind of now like you you kind of feel that out as florence interacts with this kind of journalist character who's kind of hounding for a story and these people who yeah like andy said don't really want her there uh they don't want her to uncover the mystery and i think that's part of what makes the wonder so juicy to watch because you the audience really want to know what's going on you really want to find out what it is right we, we kind of go through the motions of, of the different um you know the stages of disbelief you know like well it's like well she's obviously being fed somewhere well that doesn't seem doesn't seem to be a, a you must be stealing food food from somewhere that doesn't seem so you know initially we we kind of see that at some point though during the film the the child does seem to eventually be begin to take on the consequences of not even eating. She gets starts to become very tired, very kind of ill, definitely needing to eat, but but refusing, saying, you know, she is fed on manna from from heaven. And it's you know, it's this uh, kind of fanatical belief that is it's going to kill her if she if she doesn't do something about it or someone else doesn't do something. I think that's one of the most satisfying turns in the movie when when Florence Pugh finally gets what she wants. She says, look, if we're going to actually watch this girl, she can't have visitors. She needs to be in a controlled environment. That's science, baby. That's how it works. And the family's like, well, no, of course not. No, we, we can't do that. We want to spend time with her. She's our daughter. And like once she actually separates her off and says no visitors, nobody can talk to her, nobody can see her, suddenly her condition starts to decline, which makes it very obvious what's happening. But now you have a bit of a moral quandary, right? Like if, if, if the truth doesn't come out, we don't figure out what's happening. This girl might die and the family loses their daughter, which would be a tragedy. So you get some surprisingly unique emotional themes here. I think it plays better for some than others. A couple of reviews I watched said that, uh, it was really emotional and they got really invested. I didn't so much. And I don't know if it's because of that framing device at the start. It's a little distracting. Uh, or just because I don't know if I was on my, if I was leaned back in my chair the whole movie, but I, I didn't quite fall for it. I think the way some do, but it's worth mentioning that some have, have really gone for this movie. I've been surprised at how positive a lot of the reviews I've read. Right. I, right. Like I thought it was pretty solid, but yeah, I had been hearing some things about like Florence Pugh's performance being incredible. Other, other performances being incredible. She's good because she's always good. But it's not an, an it's not an incredible role. It's not one that she can milk. She's very kind of straightforward. Um, yes, uh, I was gonna say there, there's a big dynamic. Uh, I just want to say between men and women in this. All all the men on this. There's this panel that have hired her. They're all men, and it's like the the local mayor, the local priest, uh, the doctor who wrote an academic paper about this, and so she's kind of facing this, and and she she's very blunt about saying like this child is eating somehow you just haven't figured it out and they're like oh no 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 you don't that's not what you're here to do like just shut up <laughs> and no it's a miracle <laughs> right right like uniquely have half that board doesn't doesn't want there to be any truth to it. like they want her to come and prove that it's a miracle basically so anytime she tries to like you know work in okay well let's let's get real proof they're like well hold on a second <laughs> that's, that's not really what we want that's not really why you're here and she has to kind of suss that out uh, amongst her own drama. She's a widow. She's got a husband that passed away. And I think a, a young baby for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's said in there. And this is coming off the heels of like the plague. Right. I think some kind of famine or something mm -hmm. that has rocked this community. Um, 
I don't know. I, I, I do wonder if this film plays better in the UK. I know it was in theaters there. Maybe it hits closer to home uh, here Pro- in Texas. Probably. I think it plays fine. Like I, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Right. That, that's another theme that you just remind me. Um, it's a lot about grief and loss and how we deal with that through stories. Um, every character has in in this movie is dealing with loss of, of some kind. Uh, Florence Pugh's character uh, has made a parent that, that she lost a child at some point. Uh, the journalist has lo- lost his family in the, the famine. The the fa- the family of the the wonder the wonder daughter. I don't remember her name. Uh, oh yeah, Elaine, uh, I've got it right here. E- e- Elaine Anna. Cassidy. Yeah. Uh, uh, Rosaline. That's that's the character. That they're they have this big Irish family. They have lost the the eldest brother was was lost in that. Um, the doctor has even had you know death in the family like death kind of surrounds everyone especially at this time uh in history because the effects of the famine you know reverberate still reverberate uh, this day um and so p- that's one of the big themes of the movie is grief and loss and how we use fiction and stories to help us move past that yeah and i, I think in that way the wonder is really effective at what it is i like I said, I don't know if I would have liked it more if I was in a theater, honestly. I think I think I might have liked it less. I'm, I, but maybe you see a lot of these big landscapes. Like, it, it really inspires something bigger. Um, for Netflix, I thought it was a fine feature. I, like I said, I like that it's up front. I like that people are seeing this and clicking on it. Uh, this is something my parents might watch. And be like, did you watch this movie, The One? It was weird, but I kind of liked it. Like, I, I think it's important for movies to push the envelope a little bit. And that's exactly what Sebastian Lilio is doing. In his own way. In, in a way that's a little understated. Uh, Andy said it perfectly with Florence Pugh. This is not going to be, like, a giant performance for her. Her character's not even particularly charismatic. If anything, she's, like, cold and 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 uh, blunted by, like, the world around her and the troubles she's seen. She's seen war, right? Grief is uh, definitely a relevant thing in her life. She's quiet. She's got a low voice. Like, but I think what's happening in the wonder is like surprisingly simple for an hour 48, just one minute longer than the menu. You could certainly do worse. Uh, Andy, any other thoughts or recommendations? I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend the wonder? Yeah, I absolutely would. It, it's a nice little period film, uh, really good performances from uh, particularly the, uh, uh, the newcomer who plays uh, Rosaline Cassidy, who plays the wonder child. Very, very good. A surprisingly deep film. If you if you know any history of between Ireland, it's going to be even more uh, kind in- interesting. Um, it's a li- it's a little on the slow side. It's definitely a lot of people talking in rooms, <laughs> like, yeah. like a lot of uh, um, kind of the the cinema t- tends to be. But it it's a nice solid film, and that's what that's all I want from Netflix these days. And sometimes the bar is so low that right. it's nice just to get you know, a competent film with, you know, a, a competent story, characters, all that. And this is all, this is based on a novel, which is probably uh, a p- part of the reason that works. But it, it's a nice little film. It's on Netflix. Easy to watch. It's not, not too long. I would recommend it. Yeah, I think I'm in the same boat. Like, I think The Wonder is pretty good stuff. If you're looking for something to watch at home with a glass of wine or something one night, yeah, it's a little slower, but like it's also a bit more thoughtful. All right, it's a bit more elevated than your standard fare. If ne- like Netflix puts out so much trash nowadays, if they can get the ball even close to the net, if they can get a swing at it, that's a victory for us. And the wonder is just a bit more than a swing. It's not quite a slam dunk, but it's fun. I mean, in its own weird way, fun. But in, in the way Andy and I, like cinephiles, would like fun. And if you're not into that, then I think it's something different. And I think that's important. I, I like the wonder. I, I think it's. I, I'd recommend it too. And I'd also recommend listening to Offscript next week because we got a big week. Oh, my God. We got a big week at the movies next week. Next week, I mean, <laughs> has potential to be our, like, Lighthouse Parasite week of, of this year at the movies. Uh, what are we dude. watching, Andy? We are watching Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. This is, of course, the follow-up to not 2019 Knives Out uh, by director Ryan Johnson. Ruin Johnson back with uh, the sequel. This is super hyped. Um sequel and the interesting thing is this is out in theaters for one week only uh starting tomorrow and then it will be on netflix on uh christmas around christmas the december the 23rd so they're you know they're doing the theatrical thing so they can get be eligible for awards but they're usually when they do this it's kind of hard to see because they'll put it in like uh, two theaters in la 
Um, but it's actually like, and all the major chains. So definitely go out and, and see that if you can. And then uh, the second one is Bones and All, which is the cannibal love story by a director, yeah. Luis Guadagnino, uh, who, of course, did Suspiria and Call Me By Your Name. And that movie looks so... Ra- I've seen two different trailers, and they both give really, really different uh, kind, kinds of vibes. And But I, I'm super excited for both of these movies, uh, and I can't wait until next week to talk about them. It's funny. I think I'm overhyped for Glass Onion, and I think Andy might be too overhyped for Bones and All. <laughs> yeah, but we'll see. Probably. Yeah, I've I've got like I said, li- li- relatively lofty expectations for both of these movies because they're both coming from solid creators who are doing some really good work right now. So I'm hoping for the best with Glass Onion. I'm hoping I can see it too. I've been talking about seeing that movie for two months this week because it's the only week it's in theaters. Otherwise, it's out till December 23rd. If I don't see it, I'm gonna be dude. Oh, I'm gonna be mad. If we're not if we're reviewing Glass Onion next week, know know that I am deeply deeply upset about it. I I really am excited <laughs> to see it. Um, and if you want to see next week's episode, you want to keep up with us here on the show. The best way to do that is to subscribe. Subscribe to Off Script, this little podcast right here on your favorite podcasting platform: iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartMedia, one all the usual places. I think you can even ask your Amazon Alexa to play Off Script Film Review, and it should start playing us. I don't know for sure. I'll have to test that before I advertised on the show like i have you can also follow us on facebook where we live stream the show every week every tuesday at about 5 p.m is when we're live streaming the show we're on youtube where we upload our live streams every week shortly after i already mentioned all the podcast platforms twitter instagram all the usual socials you can follow us over there you can also check out our website oscarfilmreview.com and you can send us an email correspondence movies we should watch hot takes you've got on films we've seen whatever at mail at oscarfilmreview.com Calm. I think that covers just about everything, but I'm excited for next week. Andy, next week's episode 198. I think we might hit 200 before the end of the year. I, I, I don't know what that means. It's a big deal. <laughs> we got to do something uh, we're, cool. We're so, we're so close. I know. We're really coming down to it. Uh, I think that just about wraps the show. From all of us at Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema, I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.